Today is a baptism service, and so we're thrilled today to see several more be baptized in this service. We had five baptized in our 9 o'clock service. We'll have five more, Lord willing, baptized in this service. Um, It's a wonderful opportunity to see a picture of redemption in this act, this this right that the church has, R-I-T-E, to briefly hear the stories of those who have been rescued from darkness to light and to see the gospel pictured Uh, our own conversion story even, if you're a Christian, to see it pictured in this going under the water and coming up out of it in the the waters of baptism. So to prepare us for that, I want to turn us to Acts chapter 16 in your Bibles. Acts chapter 16. We're going to break from Colossians this week to see a, a story of conversion and salvation and even baptism and even what comes after that, a bit of fruit and change that comes from being in Christ. Let me quickly mention, just in passing, a a breakdown of the New Testament for those of you who are new to it. You hear books of the Bible, you hear numbers mentioned, chapter, verse, what are all these things? It's not as hard as it might seem. It might seem chaotic to you as you thumb through a Bible, but there's Old and New Testament. Old is before Jesus. New Testament is Jesus and since. And in the New Testament, we have four history books at the beginning all about Jesus and his life. Then we have another history book, which we're going to be in today, called Acts. And it's the Acts of the Apostles, what they did in the early church. So it's it's an early church history book. And then a big chunk of the New Testament, what we have been doing is looking at one of these letters. The big chunk is Paul's letters. They move from big letters to small letters. Pretty easy. And then you have everyone else's letters after that. And then you have Revelation, the weird thing at the end, which we don't know what to do with, right? Because it's not like any other book. One of these things is not like the other. It's doing its own thing. That's the book of Revelation for you. But today, we turn to a history part of the New Testament to see the gospel spreading in lives and and into new nations as it's carried on by apostles and other disciples. We'll see a story of one hearing about Christ, receiving Christ, turning to Christ, or maybe we could say, instead, the Lord turning to her, a woman named Lydia. Acts chapter 16, and we'll start reading in verse 6. It's Timothy, Paul, and Silas traveling about, preaching the gospel. It says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. We're not told why. It's just that the Holy Spirit is directing them about where to go. So he's saying, don't go there, don't go there. When they'd come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought, we sought to go unto Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So sailing from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. 
One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after, she was baptized and her household as well. And she urged us, saying, If you've judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Well, every now and then I say something like, Now that's the way it's supposed to go. It's rare that I say that. It's rare that it happens, that it goes the way you want it to go. I don't know if it's just me. I don't think so. I think it's all of us, right? We could think of some things, some categories. If we even open it up for discussion, it would be fun to hear our stories of different things that we wished would go just the way we wanted them to go and then fell apart. They crumbled. They crashed and burned. You know, maybe it's putting a toy together for your kids or the joy of putting furniture together. I've never put any furniture together or even made something from wood from scratch and then said, that went just the way it's supposed to go. I've never done a home repair. I've never gone to to Home Depot and said, that's the way it's supposed to go. I always have to go back. I'm always one washer short, one screw short. I always need a new drill. I added that part in. No, I. But you know what I'm saying. You plan your day, and it doesn't go the way you supposed it's supposed to go. You never get done what's on your to-do list or what you thought was absolutely essential for this week. We have to get these things done, and rarely, if ever, do we get to the end of the week and say, "Now that's how it's supposed to go." Whether it's taxes or even wedding day, so much, so much planning and prep. You even have coordinators and moms involved and we can't get it to go the way it's supposed to go. Holiday dinners, date nights, or even witnessing to a friend. You want to tell them about Christ. You want to take it one step further than you did before and you set out to do it. You purpose to do it and it just doesn't go the way you thought It was supposed to go. Well, what we see here in Acts 16 is a story of conversion, and it's one of those times to to read, to get to the end and say, now that's how it's supposed to go. And I think we can see that in seven different ways, if you want to follow along on your sermon notes page. You see, first, intentionality. Intentionality. There's a massive need and yet a particular plan. The need is overwhelmingly massive because it's preached the gospel to the nations, to the world. It's what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, that's tough enough, Judea, that's bigger, Samaria, bigger yet, to the uttermost parts of the earth. How do you obey that? You turn right or you turn left? So didn't we see Paul, Silas, and Timothy not knowing exactly where to go, and the Holy Spirit's directing them exactly where to go. The need is overwhelmingly massive, but thankfully they had, by God's grace, a very particular plan. Now, today we still need a particular plan. We still have an overwhelmingly massive need. There are many who haven't heard here in our city, let alone the nations, let alone unreached people groups. But we can't let that stop us from doing anything. They can't let that paralyze us. We need 
a particular plan. Our particular plan may not be audibly delivered to us from the Holy Spirit like it was here for Paul. But we should quickly remember that it wasn't always the way it worked for Paul like we see here in this passage. There are many times in Acts when Paul says things like, it seems good for us to to do this. It seems good for us to go to such and such a city or to stay here some more. He's not whittling a stick waiting for God to come and speak. You see, he's... He's listening when God talks, and then when he's not, he's figuring out what's the best possible plan here. How do we come up with a particular plan? We, too, need a particular plan because we have this mixture of busyness in our culture, plus the overwhelming reality that almost no one around us knows Jesus. Some do. That's great, but there are a lot of people who don't. I think that because of this mixture of busyness and being overwhelmed with the need. There's aimlessness about our mission. So we should ask, what's your particular plan for the gospel spreading through you to others? Maybe it's a a kid's sports team. It's a great way in, in which to rub shoulders with others who don't know Christ. It's a great way to have time for conversation as you watch kids chase a ball all over the field and you stand there. You have to just stand there and watch and then you get to talk. Or your hobby, whatever that might be. Or maybe you've purposed to be active in your neighborhood, to be part of the neighborhood watch or something. Or maybe just inviting friends to church and then taking advantage of the opportunity to talk to them about it afterwards. But But what's your particular plan, whatever it might look like in your context? Secondly, notice this, there's opportunity. Opportunity, they're looking for the right situations. They're not just having a particular general plan, but in that particular plan, they're looking for the right situations to get to the gospel. Remember, they're traveling to Macedonia, and they're kind of there when we get to the story of Lydia, but they're kind of not yet all the way there. They're sort of on the outskirts of Macedonia in this city of Philippi. And as they get to that place in Philippi there, they know they still need to move on further into Macedonia, but what do they do? They're eventually there on the Sabbath, and they realize that the Sabbath is a great place, a great time, great opportunity to talk to people about Jesus. So they go to a place where people pray in verse 13. I want to propose something here. Isn't Paul looking for gospel opportunities, people and places, where there's already some sort of religion, some sort of religious talk, some sort of open door to what philosophers would call the metaphysical, beyond the physical. What we would say today, especially New Agers, is they're open to the spiritual. Paul's going looking for spiritual people. Now, they don't call themselves spiritual in in their day. They're largely Jewish people. So in Acts 13, Paul goes to the synagogue. And he goes there because there's going to be a chance to read from the scroll and then to talk about it. And what does he do? He reads from the Old Testament and then talks about Jesus in the Old Testament. Or here in Acts 16, he finds some Jewish ladies at a place of prayer. He's going specifically to the place of prayer because there's already a religious platform there. You see also in Acts 17 where Paul's 
giving a lecture to philosophers, this place called the Areopagus, like a philosopher's forum. And he comes and presents almost like a a formal paper to, to these philosophers to eventually work his way into the worldview of Christ, his coming, the judgment to come, Christ living, Christ dying. You see, all these have some sort of open door to the metaphysical already in place. And so Paul's not going to the synagogue in Acts 13, not going to the place of prayer in Acts 16 because he's bound to the old forms of Judaism, but because they're gospel opportunities and he knows the Jewish faith and he knows that there is already something in place there to begin a spiritual conversation. I wonder what this same principle will look like for us today. It probably doesn't mean going to synagogues and trying to preach Jesus. I don't think you'd be very successful. I think they'd quickly find out what you're there to do and you'd be thrown out on your ear. So what does it mean for us today to look for opportunities, not just to walk up to someone and say, are you ready to die? Because that will scare them. They'll call security. You know, or you want to go to hell? I mean, what? Who, who are you, right? So you don't see that kind of thing going on in Acts. You see them looking for opportunities to speak the gospel through already some sort of religious platform or spiritual platform. And so I wonder what it would look like for us today. I wonder if our home groups, our community groups would do the exercise this week of thinking through, how do, how do we apply this principle? Maybe it means getting involved in a book club at a very liberal bookstore because you'll read things that are spiritual there, won't you? Maybe it means just not missing an opportunity when spiritual conversations actually happen. When it's remotely spiritual, see that on the basis of Acts and Paul's evangelism methods as a way to start to creep towards Christ and see what happens. Holidays are one of these things where even in our secular culture, there is some openness and sensitivity to the spiritual or to church, to going to church. Take advantage of those opportunities. Look for the right situations. Third, it's proclamation that we see here. Not just looking for right situations and showing up, but you actually got to speak. Speaking is essential. It's not optional. They need to hear the gospel. They, they won't just see a changed life and believe. They they need to believe on something and not, they're not believing on our changed lives. They're not believing in our niceness or our love or our deeds of service. They, they have to hear. So whatever else God must do for spiritual eyes, for them to get what we say, whatever else he'll do in the spiritual heart, and we'll see that in the very next, next point, there's indeed a human element that one must proclaim Another one must be actually listening. So now we get into a little intro to one of these ladies in particular that was hearing, that was listening. Her name's Lydia in the middle of verse 14. It says she's from Thyatira. She's a local gal. She's a seller of purple goods, it says. A big business in this area, Thyatira, was dying and selling fabrics for the rich. And the color purple is a rich color, not just because of tradition. You know, even today we could say, you know, what robe, what color robe should we make for the king? Oh, purple, it's regal. Well, in those days it was for the rich, the color purple, because it was hard to make. 
They didn't have these dye kits back then, ladies. They didn't have those. You didn't go to the grocery store and say, mm, I want puce. And I don't even know if that's a color. I've heard that once. You pull that one down and you can make a puce shirt out of it. But you couldn't do that in first century times. And so to make something purple, you had to make it from crushing a sea urchin or pulling out from a, a plant under the water. It was hard to do, and so it was expensive. And this woman, Lydia, is in the business of dyeing and selling fabrics for the rich, and so she's most likely wealthy. She's apparently independent. It doesn't seem that she has a husband. There's no mention of a husband, and so it seems like she's in charge of her home as we read on. She's a worshiper of God, it says in verse 14. What does this mean? Well, we have to remember that this is a transitional time in God's redemptive history. Jesus has come, but there are plenty of practicing Jews who haven't heard the news of the coming of the Messiah yet. Lydia is one of those. Acts 10, Cornelius is one of those. It's not exactly clear what the Bible means in a verse like this when it says Lydia was a worshiper of God. So it could mean she believed like Abraham believed that that God saves. He rescues and you receive that by faith. Abraham was justified by not his works, but by faith. Maybe Lydia is like that too. She hasn't yet heard, though, of Messiah, who is the means by which you can be saved through faith. Or maybe she's just religious. Maybe she's just Jewish. Maybe she's a practicing Jew, but she hasn't yet had a new heart. And it seems like it's the latter. Because in Acts, these unique cases like Cornelius and Lydia, they're treated as conversions. Right? They're treated like they went from darkness to light. Even though it says she's a worshiper of God, I think we should see that more as she's a religious person who hasn't yet come to see that Christ is God, that Christ is the Messiah, that Christ died in her place, that Christ was raised on the third day, that he offers forgiveness through his substitutionary death. That's Lydia. Fourth, what we see in the story is illumination. It's not just enough for her to hear. She needs illumination. It says at the end of verse 14, the Lord opened her heart. Now I want to camp out on this point for a while. I want to point out first that illumination and word or gospel always go together. So no one is saved by the word without illumination. And no one is saved by illumination. God opened their heart. But no one proclaimed the gospel to them, or they didn't read it in the pages of Scripture themselves. They always go together. But exactly what is the illumination? What does that mean? Well, it doesn't help that the translations differ. So the ESV, which I'm reading from, which is what we have out there, if you picked up one of those black Bibles on your way in, The ESV says at verse 14, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. So that sounds like it could just be God made her perk up. He gave her coffee. You know, the equivalent of coffee. He he made her ears attentive. He kept her from distractions. No butterflies flew in front of her face. The Lord caused her to pay attention what was said by Paul? Well, the New American Standard says, the Lord opened her heart to respond 
to the things spoken by Paul. I think that's the right translation. You see, the word here for respond to or pay attention to what Paul said, it really means receive. And so there's a sort of a simple way of receiving, an insignificant way of receiving. Hey, I received five bucks in the mail. Cool. I can get a burger. Or I received a wife. Or I received a new child. Those are big receivings, right? There's small receiving, there's big receiving. And in this Greek language in which Acts is written, the word which I think means receiving oftentimes means receiving into the mind, an opening of the heart, an opening of the mind, an opening of the will. Like it says, the Lord opened her heart. It means the Lord didn't just soften her heart. The Lord didn't just open her mind so that she now has an open mind. It's neutral. No. It means that her mind is now having understanding. It brings understanding. The Lord opened her mind so that she would understand and not so that she would just hear and not just so she would understand, but so that she would receive it. The Lord did a work in her heart so that she would receive it. The Lord made the difference. That's what this verse is saying. So the ESV, at least at this one verse, is far too weak, maybe even a little misleading. It's not that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention. The Lord did a work to open her mind and her heart so that she would see, so that she would understand, so that she would see it's good and that she would embrace it. So Lydia has divine, what we could call, divine open heart surgery. And it was needed It wasn't just God put it over the edge. She may have done it on her own, but the Lord opened her heart so that she would, like a bonus. No, she needed it. She was born with a heart disease, we could say. And Scripture tells us that we're all born with this heart disease. Lydia, Ryan Kelly, and you. Romans 3.11 says, no man seeks after God. You can say, well, it seemed like I sought God. I know. It did for me too. But a lot of my seeking before I was sought, a lot of my seeking was seeking religious things, seeking ideas. Oh, we're all seeking. There's no doubt about that. But Romans 3.11 has to be true. No man seeks after God. Now, I want to give you a lot of other verses that say essentially the same thing here as Acts 16, 14, but they say it in slightly different ways. And I want to belabor this point because it's all over our Bibles and because it's put in slightly different ways, but it's all talking about the same thing. And it's possible that you would occasionally come to one of these verses like Lydia, that God opened Lydia's heart to receive the things spoken by Paul, and you would go, "Mm, what's that mean? I don't know. And you keep going. But then you get a little bit further and you get another one of these and you go, what's that mean? I don't know. And you keep going. So let's just string a bunch of these together so that we can see this theme in Scripture of God doing something to give spiritual eyes, to open spiritual hearts, to put a new heart within us so that we would see and believe. The first is Ezekiel 36, verse 26. 
There God gives the new covenant promise that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, which all of us have. That's why no man seeks after God. The desire box is broken, cold, hard, and dead. He'll give us a heart of flesh in the new covenant. John 6, 44, so pointedly and succinctly, Jesus says there, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We can't come. We don't have the ability on our own. We won't come because Romans 3.11 says we don't seek after him. We don't find him beautiful. Remember, Isaiah 53 says that of the suffering servant, Jesus, no one beheld his glory. No one thought that he was beautiful and comely. No one was attracted to him. It's not any comment on his physical appearance. It's a comment instead about our desire to not like light. The way John puts it is, we all flee from the light. We're like roaches. We flee from the light because it exposes our sin, and Jesus is, guess what? Light. In John 3, Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born from above. Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but... You don't know where it comes from, only where it goes. So is everyone who's born in the Spirit. Why Lydia that day? Here is Paul preaching to several ladies all at once. We don't know why ladies and not men. Maybe it was just a women's prayer group. Maybe there weren't enough men believing in that town and the ladies got together for prayer. But Paul preaches to several of them. And yet one believes. Why? Maybe you came to believe in Christ while the gospel was preached to multiple people at once. And maybe you're the only one that believed. Why? The wind blows where it wishes. You don't see where it's going. You only see its effects. What I can say is you didn't believe and I didn't believe as opposed to someone else because we were smarter. Because we were better because we're more sensitive to spiritual things, because we had better parents than others, or because we're just open-minded. It takes divine open-heart surgery. Ephesians 2.5 says, Even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. That's what it means when we say, by grace you've been saved. It's not just that he died in our place and was raised. It's not just that someone came and proclaimed it to you. That's not enough. According to Acts 16, God had to open our hearts so that it would land. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified. That message is a stumbling block to Jews. It's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is power of God and wisdom of God. And Paul ends this chapter in 1 Corinthians 1 by saying, God saves in such a way that no flesh can glory in itself, can pat itself on the back, can say, I believe because I was better, smarter, more sensitive, more open. Let's put this way in 2 Corinthians 4. 
Starts off with the problem in verse 4 where Paul says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing. That's why no man seeks after God. Paul's here describing not the worst of the worst. He's describing us all. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. It doesn't look like light. It doesn't look like gospel. It doesn't look like glory. It doesn't look like a savior. But God, the God who said back in Genesis 1 and 2, light shall shine out of darkness. That same God shines in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge, of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the flesh, we see Christ presented in the gospel, and it's a stumbling block, and it's foolishness because it's shown onto the dark hearts of sin. But God, in his love and mercy, in his persistent salvation, he does more than just bring his son to the cross and raise him the third day. He does more than just send out his people into the world to proclaim and to plead. He opens dark hearts, blind eyes to see. Not surprising in Acts 5 and Acts 11, it talks about God giving repentance, granting repentance. Or Romans 2, it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance. In Philippians 1, it's been granted to you on behalf of Christ to believe. To believe has been granted to you. Not just to be saved, but to believe. Or in Ephesians 2, it's faith, not just salvation, but faith itself that's the gift of God and not of your works, lest any man would boast. Just a few more. Why don't we look at or think about Matthew 16? We're there. Jesus asks Peter, Who do you say that I am, Peter? Peter says, You're the Christ. The son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. It's not merely about words. It's not merely about physical eyes. You seeing miracles. God has revealed this to you. Acts 13.48 tells us there, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In Acts 18.10, Paul is sent by Jesus into a into a particular city because I have many people in that city, it says. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that he planted, Apollos watered, but God had to give the increase. God has to make life come up from the ground. Seeding's one thing. Humans can do it. Watering's another. We can do that. But only God can bring life out of dark hearts. So the pregnant words of Jonah 2.9 are, Salvation is of the Lord. That's all we're saying. It's really of the Lord. I love how it's worded. In the wonderful hymn by Charles Wesley, And Can It Be, we sing this sometimes. One of the verses says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, Fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye, notice how this sounds like 2 Corinthians 4. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray of light. And I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. 
the problem is bad enough that God must come into the dungeon and with his light tear through chains. If you say, Ryan, what about verses like Revelation 3.20 that he stands at the door and knocks and we just we have to let him in. If we let him in, then he'll come in. Friend, that's a verse written to a church, if you remember. And these churches are Christians, right? They're made up of Christians. It's a verse about fellowship. What it really tells us is that Jesus felt like an outsider in that church. That church had embraced the gospel. It was a church, but they were starting to desert it. It's not sort of an evangelism verse. It's more of a Christian growth fellowship verse. Charles Wesley got the picture right. When it comes to salvation, we need God to burst in to our dungeon with light and a beam from his eye to free us from the chains of sin. And when he does, we, we rise, we go forth, we follow him. Because we have seen this gospel for what it really is, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. It doesn't say it in Acts 16, but that's essentially what Paul said to Lydia. That's what light hit upon in her heart as the Lord opened her heart. She saw the problem. She saw Christ as the answer and substitution as the hope that he died in our place, was raised in the third day to give us life, and that is received through faith, not through earning it. I pray you know that gospel hope. I pray you have what Lydia came to have one day. I pray if right now you don't have it, you would, just where you are, pray that God would light a fire on his word so you see it for truth and not a stumbling block and not foolishness. Well, we'll quickly do three more here in your outline. Number five is we see identification. In verse 15, she's baptized. Baptism is a public identification with Christ. In fact, it's the main one. It's really the only one given to us in the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't talk about going forward after a church service or at the end of a church service. It doesn't talk about raising a hand and that being your public display that you're for Christ. Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Don't worry, that's okay. Some of you know exactly what what I'm talking about. Notice the public confession of Christ. Yes, there might be private confession of the heart where we pray to him. We confess Christ as Savior. Romans 10 talks about that, of course. But the public confession that we're his and we identify with the gospel in Scripture is not about going to the front of a room. It's not about raising a hand or signing a card or even putting a name or a date in the front of your Bible. Public confession in Scripture is baptism. It's one Jesus gave us. And so, ideally, it should be done quickly after conversion if you're an adult. Maybe some of you haven't been baptized, and yet you say you're a Christian. Be baptized. It signifies Christ's life and death and resurrection, and it shows that he's our only hope, that he's our saving life. He is our redeemer. It gives us a wonderful identification with what he did in the cross and the resurrection. 
So today we're having several being baptized and we rejoice in just a bit to see those pictures of baptism, rather pictures of redemption in their burial and resurrection into the water and out of it. Identification. Also, we see sixth, multiplication. We see through Lydia that a whole family believed. Verse 15, there in the middle, it says her whole household was baptized. Now, what does that mean? Her whole household was baptized. Well, first, I'm going to disagree with my Presbyterian brethren and say it doesn't mean infants. There's no mention of infants here. No mention of infants being baptized anywhere in the New Testament. I think what it means when it says her whole household was baptized is that regardless of how many, it doesn't have to mean all, even though it says her whole household. We could, we could say her whole household was baptized. And if you have servants and, and kids and it's 25 people and 23 of them are baptized, good enough. You can say whole household was baptized. They would use that kind of language in, in first century um, Jewish Greek culture. But what it means for sure, I think, is that whoever was baptized of this household had first heard the gospel. They they first understood the gospel. They embraced the gospel. And then they were baptized. So God used Lydia. Yes, he opened their hearts too. Just Just like it said of Lydia, the same could be said of everyone in the household who was baptized and heard and and believed, at some point in that process, God had opened their hearts to see the gospel as truth and and not foolishness and not something to stumble over. He had to open their hearts, but no doubt he used Lydia, similarly to how he used Paul, for God to open Lydia's heart to come to believe. There's multiplication, immediate multiplication. And then lastly, there's community. I think we see... In Lydia, an immediate instinct for fellowship. She wants to be with these people. She knows, it seems, that Christians go together like bricks go together to make up a wall. Later, there'll be a church in this city, Church of Philippi. Paul will write a glowing letter to this church. It's a church that he loves, and it's wonderful to read the book of Philippians, that letter, knowing this story of Lydia knowing how it began with just one lady. Just one lady came to believe and her household, then others. Pretty soon, there's a church. There are elders, there are deacons. There's a church that's testifying of Christ. There's a church there that's supporting Paul, praying for him and joining with him in bold proclamation, even in the face of suffering. For Lydia, there's hospitality. She invites Paul, in his, in his group, to stay with her. She wants to show them hospitality. It's, again, it's, it seems like it's instinctive. She hasn't, she hasn't had to be told that God's people do hospitality. It's commanded of you to be hospitable. It seems natural because, well, because she's understood that God shows hospitality to us. Supreme hospitality has been shown to us in the gospel. Therefore, we want to serve. We want to love. We want to give. We want to shower We want to forgive. There's also gospel partnership in this community. It reminds me of 3 John. We're there. 
John writes in glowing terms of, of those he's writing to, saying, you've been sending missionaries on their way, those traveling around with the gospel. You, you take them in, you give great effort to send them on their way, and we ought to support people like this. In doing so, we're being fellow workers for the truth. Some stay and proclaim, some go and proclaim, and those who go need those who send. And those who send, bless. They give, they serve, they take in, and then they send off. And in doing so, they're partnering in the very gospel. They've come to know and love, and that they hope spreads. That's the way it's supposed to go. Whether it's 3,000 people added to the church on the day of Pentecost, or one, and then her house, and then eventually a church. Sometimes God works big. Sometimes God works in smaller terms. But it's always him who works.